when I was in high school, I got involved in this thing called Cotillion. Now, if you've never heard of Cotillion, it's actually a pretty rough group of people that I got mixed up with. Now, it, Cotillion is a program that teaches formal etiquette, how to attend a banquet, uh, which silverware goes on the right and the left of the plate, uh, how to tie your tie, you know, fancy stuff like that. But it introduced me to a whole new world of formality that I really wasn't prepared for. So I remember 16 years old, me and my buddies, you know, trying to make a big joke out of it, like kids do, you know, asking each other for Grey Poupon and stuff like that. Well, I'm sure most of you are more brushed up on your etiquette than I am even still, even after Cotillion. Um, but there's nobody, nobody in our modern context who is as tight and serious about etiquette as the ancient Jews were. The people of Jesus' day made a huge deal out of dinners and banquets. They were sticklers for etiquette, and not just formal attire and the right silverware and hand-washing and things like that, although they took those things seriously as well, but it was bigger than that for them. The entire social fabric of the ancient world was built upon hospitality. Your status in the community depended on it. And here's how it worked. A person would host a dinner or even a banquet, and they would put together a guest list. We still do stuff like that now. But you would only invite people who were of equal or higher social standing. Because the whole point of the banquet was to preserve or perhaps even increase your own sense of honor in the community. So you would never invite people beneath you. Because their presence would bring shame on you and knock you down the social ladder. Now, if you attended such a dinner, if you were on the guest list and you came, the expectation was to reciprocate, meaning you must now invite that host over to your home for dinner. You've got to make things even. There, was, there were no exceptions on this. In fact, if you failed to reciprocate, that was considered a shameful insult. It was like spitting in the host's face not to have him back over to your house. And you can see how this would cr have created a, pretty much an endless cycle of trying to outdo one another in hospitality because this is how honor and status were maintained in that culture. Now, if that wasn't enough, even at the banquet itself, people would be seated based on their social rank. The most honorable person took the head seat next to the host, and then on down the line around the table from most to least, from greatest to least. And so always at the end of the table was the least honorable person there, although I'm sure they were just happy to be included. Now all of this is important for us to understand as we look at today's parable in Luke chapter 14. Uh, Jesus, and man, we see this all throughout the Gospels, Luke especially, shows us how Jesus was often invited to dinners and banquets, weddings, feasts. 
Sometimes we see Jesus dining with the upper crust kind of people, the highfalutin folks. And then other times we see Jesus dining with the poor, with the notorious sinners, the outcasts. And so it should be clear, even just from, from looking outside in, it should be clear that Jesus was unconcerned with his own social standing and reputation. He wasn't engaged in that cycle of honor and shame. But here in Luke 14, he aims to bring the whole system down. It's not just his own personal choice and preference. Jesus wants to show us the failure of that way of living. And what Jesus says today in, in our story, Luke 14, it's actually deeply offensive. It's quite shocking. It certainly would have been to the people of his day. Because Jesus is actually uh, reversing our normal concepts of honor and shame. And I want you to watch how he does it. Remember, he's dining in this chapter. He's dining at a Pharisee's home. He's surrounded by respectable people. Just as he was several chapters ago when we first started this parable series, remember the woman comes in and weeps on Jesus' feet and anoints his feet with perfume. He was at a Pharisee's house. That was the shock that such behavior would take place in a respectable, honorable environment. Well, here we are again in a similar setting. Luke 14, verse 12. Jesus also went on to say to the one who had invited him, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors. Otherwise, they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, since they do not have the means to repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, it should be noted right up front, Jesus is not saying you should never invite your friends and family over for dinner. That's not the point at all. What he's doing, he is reversing our value system to reflect the values of God. Who is normally on the guest list? Only the people who will preserve or advance my social status. Only those who will return the favor and invite me over and reciprocate. In which case, we are locked into this cycle, and it's not just a cycle of, of good, ordinary hospitality. It's a cycle of self-absorption and self-advancement. It's ultimately all about me, jockeying for a higher place on the social ladder. Instead, Jesus says, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and blind. Now, probably... All the good religious people around that dinner table would have agreed, yes, we should care for the less fortunate. Yes, we should have compassion toward the lame, the blind, the crippled, and the poor. We should help them as we have opportunity. Of course, that's the right thing to do. But nobody would have dared invited those kinds of people over for dinner. And why not? because the shame would be too great. For us to dine with people like that, that would drag us down the social ladder all the way to the bottom to be with them. We would be identified with 
them. No respectable person would bring folks off the street into their home and share their table with them. And what's more, these people, the, lie, the blind, the lame, the poor, the crippled, they, they have no means, no ability to return the favor. The whole system breaks down. The whole cycle, the whole reciprocation factor breaks down, and it cannot function as it's meant to. And of course, that's, that is precisely Jesus' point. Then you will be blessed, he says, because they don't have the means to repay you. That's the blessing. You're doing good for God's sake, for their sake, not to get something back for yourself. He says, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. And y'all, this is a clear echo of something that Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says it both in Matthew and Luke. If you do good only to those who do good to you in return, what credit is that? Everybody does that. But God's people are meant to be different. We are meant to be defined by selflessness and grace, mercy, and generosity. Do good and do it freely to those who cannot repay you. Do good without concern for your precious reputation. And God himself will reward you. An eternal reward that never fades because you have lived out God's heart and God's compassion. Now this is a whole sermon in itself, but we haven't even reached the parable yet. So look what happens here. Verse 15, when one of those who were reclining at the table with Jesus heard this, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. You have to love the random anonymous dudes in the Bible who blurt out things like this. It seems to happen fairly often to Jesus. What, what's this guy doing? He's essentially making a toast in the middle of the meal. And it seems clear to me he's trying to change the subject in hopes of breaking the tension that Jesus has just caused. Jesus has everybody uncomfortable at this point, and this man is simply trying to, you know, change the subject. And what he's basically saying is, how great it's going to be for all of us when we get to feast together in heaven. Now, that's not wrong. I mean, this, what this man is saying is partly right. The Bible tells us that God's eternal kingdom is a feast. It's, like a, it's a feast unlike any other. Uh, other. Other places it's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, the Lamb being Jesus, where the redeemed will feast, we will uh, dine with our Savior and celebrate His life, death, and resurrection forever. It's going to be something beyond our imagination, a sumptuous, eternal feast. But, but Jesus has a word for this presumptuous man. Look at verse 16. Here's the parable. But Jesus said to him, and of course he's speaking to all who are in the house, and he's speaking to us too. Jesus said to him, A man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. And at the dinner hour he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, 
I've bought a piece of land, and I need to go look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to go try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. So here, here's the, this is the setup. The first part of the parable. Jesus is simply playing on the conventions of the day. A story that everyone, certainly everyone in his audience there in the home, would have understood and, and been tracking with him on this. A man throws a huge feast. Obviously, he's a wealthy man. He's throwing a massive banquet, a big dinner, a huge guest list. And the way it worked back then, an invitation went out several days or even weeks in advance, and the guests would RSVP, very much like we still do. Yes, I'm coming. And then on the day of the feast, the servants would go back out to the guests and let them know that preparations had finished and that the dinner was ready. It's time to come. You agreed back when, now it's time to eat. And so in this case, the guests, clearly they all agreed to the initial invitation, but when the feast was prepared, they all dropped out. They all suddenly had more important things to do. Now this may strike us as rude, but understandable. But y'all, in Jewish culture, this would have been a massive slap in the face, not just merely rude or inconsiderate. Y'all, for, for, for all the guests, and that's the implication, they all alike made excuses. For them to deny the host, this was deeply shameful behavior. And the excuses just don't fly. They all seem to be legitimate excuses, big, big stuff. I just bought some land. I just bought some oxen to work that land. Uh, I, I just got married, right? Those are, those are legit, right? No, no. In fact, the people listening to Jesus, as they're listening to these excuses come one after another, they would have probably assumed some kind of conspiracy at this point. For all the people to act this way? If these invited guests are denying this, this precious invitation, this extremely socially valuable opportunity, it's almost as if they're intentionally shaming this man in an effort to ruin him. It's as if they're trying purposely to spoil his reputation. But Jesus, if you know, it's a parable, right? If Jesus was talking about an ordinary man, that would be one thing, but this is no ordinary man or ordinary banquet. Jesus is talking about God and God's eternal kingdom. And so look what happens in the course of the parable, verse 21. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the crippled, and blind, and lame. So he does. Verse 22, And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. End of parable. When the man is, when the man is spurned by his guests, you notice he doesn't cancel the feast. He doesn't reschedule 
to fit their, their calendars and agendas. No, he, he sets the tables and he insists that his house be filled. Bring in the poor, crippled, blind, lame, and, and there's still room after all of them come in. And so go out to the highways and the hedges and bring in the homeless, the drifters, the outcasts, the lepers. Compel them to come in. Whatever it takes, get them in here so that my house may be filled. You know, here Jesus is telling this parable to a group of respectable people. And here is what they are thinking. No doubt, here's what they're thinking. First, shame on those invited guests for refusing to honor the host with their presence. How shameful. But you know what? Far more, far more. Shame on the host for bringing all the wrong kinds of people into his home. Double shame for him. This is an embarrassment from which he would never recover. That's what they're thinking. But remember what Jesus is doing in all of this. He is reversing our concepts of honor and shame. He's turning this idea that we have on its head, and he's doing it in the most dramatic way. Because the host in this parable is God. The man who throws the banquet, this represents God himself. God who invites people into his kingdom feast, into eternal life. This is speaking of heaven. And yet there are people, we see, who spurn the invitation. And specifically, Jesus is talking to a group of people who feel so entitled to God's kingdom that they don't even realize he's talking about them. Jesus is talking to these people about these people. They are the invited guests who are yet denying God's invitation. These are the people who presume to be honorable, and yet they are not walking in humility and faith before God. And the host responds. The host says, none of those invited guests shall taste of my dinner. Those who presume upon God, people who presume upon God, I don't need your grace. I am wise enough, good enough, accomplished enough, religious enough. I will not risk the shame of admitting that I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. In that case, Jesus says, they will not enter the kingdom. They were on the guest list. They were invited in, but they refused because the only way in is by grace. And so who does get in? And the parable is clear. It's all the wrong kinds of people, all the shameful people, all the folks down lowest on the, the ladder. And, and the point of this parable is very simple. Bring anyone who will come. Bring them in no matter how poor, how dirty, how sinful. Don't test them for their usefulness to me. Are they going to raise or lower my respectability? That question is never brought up. Don't check their account balance. Can they pay me back? Will they invite me back? 
The question is never brought up. Don't survey their past to make sure they meet all the minimum moral requirements. No, no matter how far out you have to go, compel them all to come. And y'all, this parable ends up being one of the most amazing pictures of the gospel, really in the whole Bible. Who is fit for the kingdom of God? Who belongs? The answer is no one. Not one single person, not you, not me, deserves to be saved. And so who gets in in that case? Who gets in? Those who simply receive the gracious invitation. And here is the shock. For anyone who considers himself or herself a moral or religious person, God graciously, intentionally, purposefully invites all the wrong kinds of people. All of those who are looked down upon, cast out, pushed aside, left for dead. All of those who seem like they've got nothing at all to offer. They've got nothing to show for themselves. In this case, the poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame, the alien and the stranger, the drug abusers and tax collectors and prostitutes. Anyone who is lost in their shame may indeed become an honored guest, not by cleaning up and becoming honorable, but simply by receiving the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom, the feast, is an open invitation to all who will receive it, no matter what baggage they have, no matter how shameful they appear, no matter how low down on the social ladder they are. Now, we need to ask ourselves a a serious question as we look at all of this. How does this parable make me feel? How does this make me feel? Many of us, I'm sure, we like to think of ourselves as fairly honorable, nice, moral people. I think most of us probably qualify. And therefore, we we can fall very easily. We fall into uh, two temptations. First, we feel entitled to God's favor and blessing. Of course, I'm getting into the kingdom. Look how nice I am. Look how religious I am. Look at what I've done. And look at what I haven't done. Look at all the the bad things I've avoided. Of course I'm getting in. Second temptation, we're always tempted to look down our noses at other people that we consider to be unworthy. Unworthy, morally, politically, socially, or whatever else. We assign honor to ourselves and we assign shame to others. We don't have quite the honor-shame culture that ancient Israel did, but it is still very real, very present. It's alive and well. I love to see myself as honorable and look down on anyone who doesn't measure up. 
And you know, this is, I'm just, I'm just saying it. I'm, I'm saying I, because it's my struggle too. And this parable is meant to be a radical wake-up call for us. Because God does not operate that way. We, it may make sense to us. It may help the world kind of turn on its axis the right way. You've got the good guys, the bad guys. You've got the right kind of people and the wrong kind of people. Right? It makes it easy for us to assign honor and shame that way, but God doesn't do it. Those who are sure they deserve to be in are out. Those who feel entitled to God's blessing don't receive it. You cannot be saved by grace if you insist on trusting your own righteousness. You can't have both. If I'm so happy with myself, and if I'm constantly jockeying for position, for standing, for status, for honorability, if I'm constantly looking in the mirror, proud of the kind of person I am and I'm becoming, then I will be offended by the idea of grace. I don't need that. Look at, what, look at my resume. You can't be saved by grace if you insist on trusting in your own righteousness. And listen, those on the other side, people who have nothing to offer, they have only faith to receive, they're the ones who are in. Even if on, by every other measure they don't deserve it. Even if they're the lowest on the totem pole in our estimation, it's irrelevant. They have nothing to offer at all. Fine. If they simply receive, they are the ones with a seat at the table. Y'all, because listen, to be a Christian means we have trusted Christ and His righteousness for us. And there is no sin, there is no shame, there is no place that we can hold at the lowest rung of the ladder. No matter how bad it is, there's nothing at all that can stand up to the bright, beautiful light of the grace of Jesus Christ. Every sin is covered. All shame is covered. Every low-down and forgotten, cast-out person is raised up and glorified through faith in Christ. That's just the way it works. And that's the way we're meant to understand Christianity. I don't get to look down on anybody because I require the same precious grace as they do. And therefore, the ideas of honor and shame just don't hold anymore. And y'all, there's, there's a wonderful paragraph in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul reminds us of this in order to keep us humble and to make sure our confidence is being put in the right place. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, he says, consider your own salvation, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. He's saying you weren't the wisest, richest, smartest, strongest folks. That's not why you got saved. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. 
but by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. To be a Christian, to have a seat at the heavenly feast, requires no honor on your part, no resume, no offering to get in, no wealth, no wisdom, no reputation, no strength, no status. Because Jesus has become to us the wisdom from God and the righteousness and the sanctification and the redemption that we require. It's all Jesus. He is first. He is last. The only way I get a seat at the heavenly table is with open and empty hands to receive Him. And He graciously gives His life for us. Y'all, this is a scandal. You may have heard it so many times it doesn't feel quite so sharp anymore. But let's be reminded, this is scandalous. Grace is a scandal to those who feel like they've earned their place, only to find out it's a free gift for anyone. What about all my good works? What about all my, uh, you know, church attendance? What about, all, you know, we, we, we want to pull out the resume. Grace is scandalous to us because God says, no, it's a free gift. Put your resume away. Does you no good. In fact, the people with the worst of resumes might just be sitting right next to you. That's scandalous. And y'all, grace is a scandal also for those who know they are unworthy, for those who know they are far down the ladder, because it just seems too good to be true. How could God love and bless someone like me? For every single person, whether you are honorable or whether you live in shame, is irrelevant. Grace is yours freely given, to be freely received. What a glorious scandal this is. That the God of the universe has a heart like this. Think about what happens toward the end of that parable. The man, the Lord, says, go out to the furthest reaches, go out as far as it takes, and compel them to come in until my house is full until my house is full. I will not be satisfied until my house is full. <laughs> you know what that means? Right where you sit, there is plenty of room at his table for you and for me. If we will receive his gracious invitation. Would you pray with me? Father, for, uh, for me this morning, and I suspect for many of us, we are dead set on, on maintaining and upholding honor, on being good religious people. It's very important to us that we separate ourselves out, that we live in a way that, that, um, that we're climbing the ladder because that's how the world measures 
us. That's human nature. It's just natural to us. And in that case, Lord, we're, we're these two temptations, I pray for me, I pray for us, that you, would, that you would give us clear eyes to see that we are tempted to forsake your grace as if we don't need it because we've got our resume nicely typed out. And we're also tempted uh, to look down on the folks that we don't think can measure up to us and to become self-righteous people. And so, Father, in that case, if, if, we, are, if we fall into those categories, um, open our eyes and our hearts this morning to this wonderful parable, this wonderful teaching, that you have turned things in reverse. You've chosen what is foolish and weak and debased. You've reached down to the very bottom, to the dirtiest, ugliest places on your planet, to the, to the least worthy people there are. You've reached all the way down by the grace of your son, Jesus, and you've brought them in. And Father, would you give us just a sober mind to see this as the truth? That's us. There, in the end, there are no honorable people who deserve better. That's us, Lord. We are dead apart from you. We are without hope apart from your grace. We are covered up in sin, incapable of saving ourselves. Lord, we're the ones at the bottom of the ladder. And yet, Lord, you've graciously loved us and invited us in. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us the kind of hearts that we put aside all of our false human intuitions and, and estimations. All the things that we try to build up for ourselves. And Lord, that we would look full face to Jesus Christ, who came out to the furthest reaches to compel us in, to bring us in that we might enjoy a feast that we do not deserve and we cannot repay. And yet it is free and it is eternal. So give us, Lord, faith to see Jesus in all his goodness today, to love him and follow him, to forsake the old way of honor and shame. And Lord, now to live in a new way that we don't esteem people the way we used to, we invite in the poor. We invite in those who can't pay us back, those who might bring our reputation down. Who cares? We want to love others the way you've loved us. And Father, give us, give us such a heart that as we see what we really are, undeserving, unable to offer you, Lord, anything you need, Lord, you didn't, you didn't bring us your grace to get something back out of us. You didn't bring us your grace because we were so, so close and we just needed a little help. Lord, you brought us your grace when we were absolutely lost because you've loved us that much. And so, Father, make us a people, make us a people who just, we fall all over ourselves in love and devotion and honor to you and worship of you and in obedience to you, that we might live the kind of life that reflects the light, the beauty, the grace 
the compassion and the generosity that you have so freely given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, give, renew our faith today. Refresh us in our faith to look to him, to love him, and to walk with him. We ask it in his awesome name. Amen.